Welcome to the Bethel Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Eric Johnson. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit Bethel.com. I want to start off by asking a question. What is the ambition of God? What is the great ambition that God has? What is his desire? You know, we're taught in Western culture especially that our desires, our passions, our ambitions, our dreams, we're taught that that's very important. I mean, you can go down to any bookstore or get on Amazon and some of the top books that are for sale right now have to do with you accomplishing your desires, dreams, and ambitions. And there's nothing wrong with that. There, there's a place for it. And we know that God put that inside of us. As believers, we know. So there's nothing wrong with that. But how many understand if we, if we disattach that or are not attached to the ambition of God, then all of that means nothing. And so I think it's a good question for us to ask is what is the ambition of God? What is he, what is he ambitious about? What does he want? I want you to imagine with me, let's go back in time to where there was no time. And God was sitting there or floating. We're not sure what God was doing, but he was there. And he was sitting in darkness and void and empty. There was nothing in existence that we're aware of. And he's just sitting there. And, and you know, you can't, I don't know how this works with God, but he had an idea. Now, I actually think it wasn't just on a whim. I actually think God was stewing on this for some time, although you can't say time yet because time wasn't created. But God was stewing over this idea of creation. And I want you to imagine with me in the emptiness, darkness, and void, as God said, let there be light. The moment he said that something came, light happened. And for the next six days, now we don't know if it was 24-hour days or if it's a thousand years. We don't know that, but we know it's six days. However that quantified at that moment we just know it took God six days. And imagine the delight that, imagine God, how much fun was God having in that moment, in those six days? I think he was having the time of his life, although you can't say life because he's, <laughs> you get the point. But God is enjoying himself thoroughly. I think he's like, oh, I got this idea, this long animal with a long neck, with spotted, really long legs, and we're going to call him a giraffe. And he created, I mean, God had just created, imagine being there in that moment, watching all this unfold. And God had just creating a way, just all the ideas he'd been pent up or held up or whatever. He's just having the time and he's creating the universe. He's creating the rocks and the planets and gravity, no gravity and all the things that we still don't even know about. The stuff on the bottom of the ocean or the thing to the end of space. God is creating it. And by the time you get to the end of chapter one, you run into this great verse, verse 31, and God looked upon everything that he created, and this is what he said, it is very good. It's one of those verses that we read and we just kind of read over it, not in a nonchalant way, like, yes, we're good. God was so happy with what he created. But I want to take it back to that moment, that statement. We, we need to understand that that statement in of itself drove a stake so deep into the universe. It drove a stake so deep into eternity that placed value on what he created. 
Did you know that over 3,000 years of Hinduism and over 2,600 years of Buddhism and even over 1,000 years of Islam and a century of secularism still does not value human life? Our faith, the Christian faith, this is one of the main things that stands apart from every other major world religion, and that is this, value for human life. Anytime you run into a culture, a society that is losing value for human life, it is moving the opposite of what God stated in the beginning, and that was, it is very good. This is why you can travel the world right now. Secularism is taking over nation, and the value for human life is falling down the list faster than you'd want to admit. It's because we're moving away from this value. You understand that when God said it is very good, it was a radical statement. It was a value system that was driven deep to the core of everything in existence. God said this has value, this has worth, and this has purpose. Isn't it interesting that inside each and every one of us, doesn't matter if you're an American, you're from South America, you're from Europe, you're from Africa, you're from the South. It doesn't matter what part of the world, what religion you're from, or what religion you attach yourself to. I've never yet to meet a human being that doesn't want to know their value, their worth, and their purpose. I don't care what religion you attach yourself to. Everyone inside is like, what's my purpose? How valuable am I? Am I worth anything? You know why that's inside us? Because God said it's good. He said it's good, and therefore we are, we are valuable. We have worth, or maybe we don't. And these are the questions that fly around the head of humanity today, as it did way back then. But let's ask the question, what's the ambition of God? You know, our narrative, thankfully you and I have the Bible. We have, we have scripture that gives us, uh, gives us a very clear narrative of God. Now, the mistake or, or the, the shortfall, if you will, is that a lot of Christians have a sum of the narrative, including myself. I'm still learning, well, God, what is, this what is this thing you're doing? But unfortunately, a lot of the church is still very much focused on the fall and redemption. And not to demean that, how many are thankful that because of the fall of sin, the fall of, the fall of man and the nature of sin, you could be redeemed through the power of Jesus Christ? I mean, that is, that, you can go to your grave on that and you be good. You're great. But I want to propose to you, there's actually a bigger story at play than just that. It's not just about the fall and the redemption. There's actually creation before that. And then there's the restoration of all things after redemption. And sometimes we're focused on just part of the story and not the whole story. So we have to ask the question, what's the ambition of God? What is he up to? What is he after? So as we get into Genesis, we recognize, recognize that God said it is very good. Then as you get into the book of Genesis, you run into a guy named Moses. Now Moses was a legend. He's a legend of our faith and he's a legend, period. Didn't matter anywhere in what people know who Moses is. Like that guy was the man. And Moses was this disqualified, unqualified, talk about issues. He had a stuttering problem and was supposed to talk to Pharaoh. And he had killed somebody and was now a fugitive. I mean, his resume does not line him up for the top position to set nations free. 
and yet God chooses that person, which is so encouraging to every one of us in this room, that God loves to choose the most unlikely people. So here's Moses, and you get this story of God working with Moses. And Moses said, God, I can do it, and God finds a solution to it. And God works him all the way to this point. Now, what we do know about Moses is Moses was raised in Egypt. As a young boy, he was raised in Egypt because God had a bigger plan at play, and that was, I want to overthrow that kingdom. So I need someone on the inside to understand the custom, the laws, the culture, the rules, how they think, how they talk. Because I'm going to send that person back in there, and we're going to flip that kingdom upside down. And so some, for some of us, understand, you might be working in Pharaoh's camp right now, and that was by God's design. Because someday he may actually send you back in there to see his kingdom come into that context. So sometimes we need a Pharaoh in our life to teach us how to actually bring the kingdom into Pharaoh's house. That's an entirely different point today. So Moses becomes the guy that set the nation free. And as you approach the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, you start getting these interactions. You start getting these moments where God and Moses start having these intimate moments. And in these moments, God is inviting Moses up on the mountain. He said, Moses, come up here. Come up on the mountain. And while the nation of Israel said, we are not going up there, Moses said, I'll come. And this became a regular occurrence. This wasn't some once every once in a while. Moses would spend weeks, sometimes months, up on the mountain with God. And he would come down. So we get these hints, these glimpses into some of the ambitions of God and, and that he wanted to be amongst Moses. Now, if Moses had a tombstone, I doubt he did, but if he did, you know what would be on it? Friend of God. Someone that met God face to face. That would be on Moses' tombstone. And so we get through Exodus, and you, you see this Moses, and then you jump ahead a little bit in Scripture, where the common world thought and view towards God, or any deity of that matter, was more distance, more distance, more distance. And in there, imagine King David. King David was a highly emotional human being. Understandably so. I mean, the guy's life was definitely polarizing in so many ways. So you can imagine, this is why Psalm did the book of all emotions known to man are in that book. And imagine one day, David's in the temple, he's writing songs, he's, he's just crying out from the depth of his heart. Out of desperation, joy, we don't know. But in this moment, in Psalm chapter 68, he says this, God, you're not after my sacrifice, you're after me. And he breaks through the paradigm, world thought, worldview of that day. Instead of creating distance, David said, God actually wants us to be close. So David becomes this, this beacon of light in a dark era. And he starts making up all these songs that are so relevant today, but were not relevant to worldview thought in that time. What's my point? David is getting a glimpse of the ambition of God. What's the ambition of God? And then we know about the prophet Joel. Now, Joel was a character, but before we go, Joel, let's talk about Judges. How many of you have read the book of Judges in the last six months? I'm going to say that's roughly 2% of this room. You see, it's not that book you read Sunday morning devotions or morning devotions. Not that book you read, because, man, I am so encouraged. This just gets me, I'm going to focus on this verse for the day. There's no verse in there except for a few. I mean, it is so bad. It is a great revelation on the devastation and destruction of sin. You often wonder, why did the father decide to put that book in the Bible? And for some, it's actually created our narrative of God's attitude towards humanity. 
Uh, I just want to propose it's actually God's narrative or God's view towards sin. There's actually a lot of other great narratives in there. And Judges is so bad. I mean, this is what happened in Judges. You read about a king, and the verse said, this was the most evil king ever. Then the next, or the next judge and king comes along, and the, the verse said, actually, they're more evil than the previous guy. Then the next one, by the time you get 10 guys down, they're all, this guy is worse than all of them combined. I mean, that is Judges right there. Except there are moments in there. You have Samson. You have Gideon. You have Deborah. What's the point? God is always looking for someone to set nations free. He will go into the depths of the earth to find one person that will say yes to him. And then the prophet Joel. Prophet Joel, we know about Joel because of the book of Acts. Now, we are a book of Acts church. We are charismatic, we are Pentecostal, and we love the and suddenlies. We love the Holy Spirit showing up and just messing everything up. And we have the advantage of looking at the narrative of the Holy Spirit through Scripture and now through history to understand, to some degree, how the Holy Spirit moved. But work with me for a moment. The people in Act had no context for how the Holy Spirit moves yet. And so in Acts 2, the, the wind comes in the room, fire on the head, speaking in tongue, not just spiritual tongue, but speaking in other languages. And then they're acting like they've been filled with alcohol. And there's mass confusion. You know why there's mass confusion? Because there's no context for this yet. They're like, what is this? All we know, Jesus told us to wait. And what he said just not that many days before in John 14, 15, and 16, you read about a description of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus begins to describe the Holy Spirit. He says, he's your helper. He's your promise. He's the great promise that's going to come. He's going to encourage you. He's going to exhort you. In fact, he's going to help you remember everything that I've taught you. Have you ever been driving down the road and you have this thought that comes in your mind and there's something God told you nine years ago that you completely forgot about and God brings it into your mind today? That's the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to make sure you don't ever forget what Jesus taught you. I'm so encouraged by that part of the Holy Spirit that he makes sure. Could you imagine Jesus saying, hey guys, I've got to go. And the disciples are like, wait a second. What do you mean you got to go? We're just getting started. Have you checked out your Facebook page? Every human being on the planet is following you right now. And Instagram, every picture you post has minimum 20,000 comments. We've never seen, you're, you're blowing the metrics off of the social media algorithm. It is, you're breaking the internet every time you post the picture. So when Jesus said, I'm gonna end my time on earth, the disciples were like, no, we're just getting started. And he said, don't worry, I'm gonna send a helper, an encourager, an exhorter, a comforter, and a reminder. He can help you remember. They're like, Okay, awesome. Then Acts 2 comes around. Have you noted that the description of God doing something in your life never seems to match the manifestation of it happening in your life? There would have been no confusion in Acts 2 if the description of the Holy Spirit matched the experience of the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, some of us have God telling us something and we're looking for our expectation of what it's going to look like. So this is why there's mass confusion in Act 2. They're running around going, what is going on? And then Peter goes, oh, I know what this is. And he runs to the front, grabs the microphone, gets on the stage and says, I know what this is. This is Joel. Joel told us about this way before our time. And he said that Spirit was going to pour himself out on all flesh, your sons and your daughters. And he goes to Joel, what we know, Joel chapter 2. Then you find that other little obscure prophet in the Old Testament. His name is Amos. 
Amos is just this obscure little prophet in the Old Testament, but end up saving the Gentile church, which is a pretty profound thing because you and I are a part of that right there. And in Acts, you have a massive theological issue happening 20 years after the day of Pentecost. You have an issue where the Jews are demanding, some of the Jewish leaders are demanding the Gentile be circumcised because they got the Holy Spirit without circumcision and the Jews said, this isn't fair. The cart before the horse. So you guys need to actually go get circumcised. Now, let's be honest here. If you're a Gentile, which you are, by the way, and you're experiencing the same Holy Spirit they are, but you're not circumcised, how many of you would say, I'll pass, but thanks for the suggestion? <laughs> a few of us would. Especially the guys. We're like, yeah, absolutely. Especially at this age. We ain't going there. And then in that moment of massive theological disagreement, the apostle James said, hey guys, I found this old prophetic word from Amos and he pulled it out and it says this, God's gonna tear down the temple, rebuild it so that all nations and Gentile can worship him. It was that moment, that obscure little prophetic word that came back to the forefront and shaped theological thought from that point forward. What is going on here? What is the ambition of God in all of this narrative? I'm only touching on a few. The whole scripture is full of this. And it reveals what I'm just calling the ambition of God. I need three people. So I need someone that looks like Jesus. So if you have long hair, you're a guy. You have long hair and a beard. And they look like Jesus. Point at him right now. because I need... Right here? Okay, you got pointed at, man. You got to come up here. To welcome Jesus to the stage. All right, come on up here. Come stand right here. Yeah, you do look like Jesus. You're like a, like a, yeah, that'll work. What's your name? Scott. Scott? Scott, nice to meet you. You're Jesus right now. Okay, so stay right here. Now we need someone that looks like the father. You got to be older, older than me at least. Got some gray hair, maybe a gray beard. That would make it just really epic. Yeah, I'll take you. I like you. That's a good looking beard. Why don't you come up here? Give it up for the father. Now come on up. When I say gray beard, he's all <laughs> proudly. Yeah, come on up here. Come stand right here. And what's your name? Whoa, nice. What's your name? Uh, Terry Dells. Nice to meet you. All right, stay right there, okay? Jackson. Okay. Now I need someone that looks like, you have to be a female. You have to be a woman. You look like the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to keep looking. That's a good option. Right here. Yes. Yep, you got pointed out. Come on. Welcome the Holy Spirit to the stage. All right, come on up here. I know you pointed at Abby, but I thought it'd be better if you came up. All right. So here we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Son, we have the Father. Now I want you guys to hold hands and form a circle. It's going to be a while, so get comfortable. All right? So just, just stand there. Don't make any noise. Just be. What's happening between these three right now is what we would call the presence and what I'll call the agape love of God. In the Greek, there's actually four words to describe love. One of them where we get our, sexual, our sexuality, our sexual love, intimate love. The other one where we get our friendship love. And then the third one where we get our parental love. 
But those three will always be perverted, distorted, if you don't experience and have an encounter with the agape love. So what's happening between these three, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the agape love. Now, we were never designed to observe that. We were never designed to observe the agape love through the Holy Spirit. We were never designed to observe the agape love through the, the Jesus, the Son, and through the Father. And the challenge that we have, and how many understand, just observing this will change your life. I mean, it will, you're like, oh my gosh, I want that. But there's a difference between observing it than experiencing it. So let me inside. <laughs> so now I'm not observing it anymore. I am now experiencing this agape love. This agape love that's going on between these three, this Godhead, is something I'm now experiencing. Now I experience the agape love through the Son, through the Father, and now through the Holy Spirit. Okay, give them a hand. You guys can grab a seat. Thank you. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I like that guy. We were never designed to just observe something. And the challenge for some of us, we've only observed it. We're not aware that we've not yet experienced it. So what's the ambition of God? What is he after? So we were not meant to observe it, then we must be meant to experience it. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I better read it now or I'm going to forget. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers, foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I, have, I, I love this passage, but the last part is what I want to focus on. The God is actually putting us together so he can become a dwelling place amongst us, and we are being made into a dwelling place for God. Up until the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, something couldn't happen. The Holy Spirit couldn't come yet. So as Jesus is preparing the disciples for the coming of the Holy Spirit, he said, I have to go because I'm sending someone. And when the Holy Spirit comes, I'm going to explain this from a practical, very human understanding. Why did Jesus have to leave? Now, we understand theologically and scripturally, and just to seal the deal, Jesus had to be glorified back with the Father to seal the deal of death, resurrection, and redemption. We know that. But let me look at it from a slightly different angle. Jesus would be somewhat limited of touching the whole earth and occupying people's lives especially in that day when there's no transportation, no technology, no means to do mass impact. Now, what's fascinating, if you didn't know this kind of a cool bit of information, is Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from the place he was born, and yet he changed the entire universe, which should be encouraging to every one of us. You don't have to travel the world to change the world. And so Jesus 
So the only way this thing's going to go to a whole nother, have you noticed in Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, the early church explodes? It's not like a slow introduction. There's meet and greet. There's an info meeting. There's, there's none of that stuff. There's none of these marketing campaigns. Hey, everyone, there's a church down the street you should join. That is not even in the thought of humanity yet. Do you know why it exploded? Because God had been pulling this rubber band farther and farther, stretching this thing so far back. Prophetic word, act, prophet of old getting killed. Moses, David, Abraham, all these great men, he's pulling it back. Finally, at the end of the old covenant, he says, all right, I'm ready. He lets go of it and Jesus shows up. The reason why he waited so long, in my opinion, is so it would be unstoppable. It exploded in the book of Acts. And Jesus went from going from the earth to heaven and then the Holy Spirit comes. So what is the ambition of God? It's to occupy your life. It's to not just to be amongst you, which we see in the old covenant. He actually wants to be within you. Some of you are going to have guests over tonight for dinner. What are you going to do this afternoon? You're going to clean your house, especially the bathroom that they're going to use. The one that you never use. You're like, oh, I got to go clean that bathroom. I have never been in there in a year. Oh, my God. And you clean that bathroom. In fact, you hire somebody to come over and clean it because you're just disgusted with how nasty it is in there. And then you think, they might go in the pantry. I should probably organize the pantry real quick. You're going to vacuum. You're going to clean your house. Why? Because you're getting ready for a guest to come over. Did you know the Holy Spirit is the only guest in the universe that you don't clean your house for? And a lot of us are trying to organize our life so then God can show up. God's like, that's not how it works here. I come and clean your house. And a lot of us are trying to clean our lives up and we're waiting for the right moment. Go to another conference, another book, another laid a hand on praying for me, another prophetic word. Okay, now I'm ready. And that's not how it works. This is why Paul said, so that you can't boast. So you can't stand there and say, I did X, Y, Z and equal this. And a lot of us want that so bad. And God's like, that's not how it works here. I want to occupy you before you ever existed. And I've been fighting for you my entire existence to occupy your space. And we're like, ah, not today, not today, not today. And I want to challenge you. God wants to take up residence in every area of your life. That closet that you haven't looked at since you were a kid, God wants in there. That back room that you don't even know what's in there because you've just shut it and locked it and deadbolted it from the outside. Holy Spirit's like, I want in. I want to clean that part of your life up. Because when I have access to every room in your life, then guess what happened? Everything changes. The ability to actually be like Jesus is possible. Did you know that it is impossible to be like Jesus without the Holy Spirit. It's not, even an op- it's not even on the list of options. Oh, I can do it that No, that's not even there. The only pathway to be like Jesus is to the Holy Spirit take complete control of you. So what is the ambition of God? It's to occupy your life. It's to be present with you. It's to be among you. It's for you to experience the agape love of God and for the Holy Spirit to take up residence in every corner 
of your life. That is the great ambition of God. And he's been fighting for that since he started everything. So why don't you stand? Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This weekly podcast is being translated into multiple languages. Please visit podcasts.ibethel.org.